Power work can be specific and probably should be specific at some point. But strength work is general because the main purpose of strength work for an athlete is simply to increase the capacity of the nervous system to send a strong activation drive to the muscles. That's all it is. It's just to be able for that central machine to send a signal, whatever that signal is. Okay. So you don't need to have a movement that is very specific to be effective for sport. And that's why some people will benefit for strength work from strength work if they have an inefficient nervous system, yeah. while others won't if they already have that, that very efficient central drive. That was Christian Thibodeau, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online sports technology store that curates the best of in various elements of training, such as timing systems with the free lap timing system, training tools with things such as blood flow restriction training and the K-Box, athlete monitoring devices such as velocity-based training, force plates and the VO2 master, and much more. I choose sponsors for this show that I use their products personally, and I have been loving using blood flow restriction training this past year. The free lap timing system has been an absolute staple for me. I've really enjoyed using bar speed tracking and the K-Box. Those and other products in their store have been a really valuable part of not just my coaching journey, but also my journey as an athlete. They have as well an amazing blog on sports performance and are a top-notch company with great customer service. Be sure to check them out and you can do that at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to another episode of the podcast and thanks for being here. Our guest today is none other than coach Christian Thibodeau. Really excited to have him back on the show. Christian is a prolific author and writer in the strength and performance industry. He's the originator of the neurotyping training system, the Omni Contraction Training System. And I have taken many pages of notes from our conversations through the course of this show. Last episode Christian was on, he went in depth on power complexes and training, specifically on the adrenaline cost of using a lot of exercises in a power training complex, uh, a power training complex being using multiple different exercises in a single training circuit. So heavy squats, jump squats, depth jumps, all in one training circuit. And he talked about when to use power complexes and when to see if athletes could get their gains and transfer gains into the field without the use of complexes was a really fascinating conversation. And this talk builds on that. Christian will get into the relationship of strength and power and the specific nuances of each. In this show, he'll be getting into some nuts and bolts of the Gunther training complex used by a shot put champion, Werner Gunther, back in the 80s. He's going to be talking about progressing complexes in terms of sensitivity and resensitivity. This is just a great show that builds on the idea of complexes and furthers our knowledge in the realm of the role of strength and then the role of power complexes in that athlete training program. It's always great to talk to Christian. Love having him on the show, and I'm excited to get you guys this episode. Let's get on to it. Christian, awesome to have you back on the show. There's so much I want to chat with you about today. And yeah, thanks for being here, man. I'm excited for our conversation. Well, it's always a nice chat with you because I, I really enjoy like the pure performance talk. I don't get to do that a lot these times. So it's always a, like a like a dessert for me to talk with you. Yeah, I, I know we'll have a lot to cover and this might end up being a little bit shorter. I know we're both on a little bit of a time limit here today. So sometimes it's a little bit different when you don't just have, you know, two hours for sure, but I'm excited to get whatever I can with you here. So we'll get right to it. You know, you um the podcast you just had with Pat Davidson was an amazing just just training nuts and bolts and philosophy talk. And it was really cool listening to that. And you said something in the midst of that that it got my wheels turning and I think this becomes more and more and more relevant the older you get. I think people who train high schoolers, especially high schoolers these days, sadly, who don't get enough variety in their sport play. But I tend to train. Uh, I don't have enough variability in my own training, I think, at age 39 here. I, I love speed and power and sprints and the lifts. But you mentioned a friend of yours who's, I think, in his mid-50s and in, in incredible shape, and there was a seasonality to how he trained. So I'd love if you could start with that story to kick us off. Yeah, it, it's actually wrote an article or even a series of articles about that. And, and it's he's a guy I used to coach with in football. He's also a physical education teacher there and a strength coach. And he is in literally the same physical condition at like 55 now 
than he was when we were training in the same gym together when he was like 35 or, or 37. And he, he, he does something weird that's probably anti-conventional because it, it goes against the grain in that he divides his training in four different periods, uh, which are completely like different uh, mesocycles. There will be some carryover from one to the other, but it's really like a separate season completely, like if he was preparing for a different sport. So for example, he will have, in the winter, he would have uh, more of a, a powerlifting approach, for example. Well, autumn, it would be more bodybuilding. Then he would go in the winter, it would be more powerlifting. Then he would go into autumn and he would train like an Olympic weightlifter. And in the summer, he would train like a track and field athlete. And each period would obviously last roughly 12 weeks because of the yearly calendar. And each would be its own periodized tree phase or tree blocks, whatever you want to call it, cycle. So it's a full peaking cycle for bodybuilding, for uh, without the like the fat loss aspect, just pure hypertrophy. Uh, like the, the, the powerlifting phase will uh, be a lead up as if you were competing in powerlifting. Same thing with weightlifting, although he sticks with the power variations of the Olympic lifts, uh, not the full squat variations. And then he would move on to more of a, like the, the track and field training, which will actually combine elements of the powerlifting and the weightlifting portion on top of obviously the plyometrics and stuff like that. Yeah, to so, me. What, what, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, no, no worries. Did you have anything else that you were going to say? Well, I was just going to mention that one thing that it's very recently I understood, like one of the main physiological benefits of that approach, because uh, like for, strictly from a physical capacities perspective, I can understand it because, for example, the hypertrophy phase will build a muscle mass you can use for powerlifting. Powerlifting will build a strength uh, that might help you build power although i have changed my view a bit on the impact on on of strength work on power development we often say that it's the foundation of power but i think the role of strength in power development is overstated and i'm not saying it's not important but it's not as important as we want to start and not for everyone anyway so that's the way we, we used to think about it. And obviously the way to think, which is higher speed is a nice, nice bridge mm -hmm. into the uh, track and field work. Uh, but also is that the body becomes desensitized to a certain training stimulus. If you keep giving it that same stimulus for a long while, you might change exercises, you might change volume. But if the type of stimulation and the required adaptations are the same, then each session or each passing week, the, the, the stimulus becomes less and less effective. Now, that's the role of periodization. To keep progressing, you need to increase the strength of a stimulus as the body becomes desensitized to it, right? But at one point, there is no way to increase the strength of the stimulus without overtraining. So that's where you need to either change direction completely, which is what my friend does, or include a maintenance phase. To, with a dramatically decreased volume, probably one third of what you were doing to resensitize your body. You can even go like two weeks without training at all. So what I think worked so well and that allowed him continuous progress, even as he was getting older, was that resensitization effect. So from, from he would basically stop each block once he has peaked and probably can't increase the strength of the stimulus anymore. Then he would change the type of training completely. Now the body is sensitive to the new type of stress. So you would train this, it would start a cycle with lower volume and just increase the but lower training stress. And you would gradually increase the training stress to compensate for the gradual down, uh, down regulation. And then once the body was tapped, uh, tapped out, then it would change quality again or change focus again and the body would be receptive again. Now, that's probably not the best way to train if you need to specialize in one type of development. But if you want overall physical conditioning, be in great shape, be powerful, be strong. And if you like stimulus variation, like for example, myself, I need variation in my training and I need my training to be goal-oriented. When I was younger, because of my self-image issues, just getting stronger or, or more muscular was sufficient for me. But I find that the more and I don't, I don't like to say this, but the more successful I am from a professional standpoint and with my family and stuff like that, the need, the, the less I need external vari uh, validation, right? So my training 
motivation now is gone because it used to be to earn respect of other, right? Now I don't, I don't need that. So I need to have very specific goals. For example, two years ago, my goal was to squat 500 again. So I, my training was solely focused on that. Then it was to improve my golf swing. Then it, and I took my golf swing from 112 miles an hour to 133. So that, then my goal was achieved. Now it's to like get my incline bench press strong again. So I always need a rabbit to chase. And that division, that periodization is something I instinctively like do. I don't do it as structured as my friend, but I find that to me, it's the best way to progress. Yeah. I like what you said there. And I think a lot of us, it's like, when, especially you think about when teenage boys start lifting, it is, there's part of that is a rite of passage almost like into adulthood. But then there is also that comes with that a lot of validation. You know, if I look this way, then people will respect me. If yeah. I look, it's like this covering over, you know, not to say I'm, I think that it's great when <laughs> I think it's great for young adults, young males to lift for a lot of reasons. But I think what's never covered within that is some of the validating reasons. And like you said, once we get a little bit older and we start sorting that out for whatever way, it almost frees us up a little bit, you know, to not necessarily have to look a certain way. Maybe we play a little bit more instead. We do something that we do just for the sake of doing it. That's just more fun. And I'm even still getting (laughs) more, giving myself permission to do things that are just fun for the sake of doing them rather than for me, my validation, Mm -hmm. a lot of it has been, well, how high can I jump? How fast can I run? How much do I know about those things? And just to give myself some release from that, for even just some time where that doesn't matter, just to do it for the sake of doing it, like like rock climbing or break dancing or things that are, yeah, just more movement. So sorry, I, I just, that that definitely resonates with me as well, you get it, older. It's funny you mention that because like, even like myself, even with my workouts, I actually had to make a post about that and, and mention it in one of my live Q&As because people will always want to know how I train. And I say, well, the thing is, is that a lot of the stuff I'm doing is not optimal for improvement i do it for two reasons first because at this point in my life i'm trying yes to achieve a goal and that's going to be the overarching principle but i do a lot of stuff simply because i want to do them and i just enjoy doing them it might for example i like to train every day which is something i would never recommend to anybody okay (laughs) but me i like it. it it just fits into my circadian rhythm it sets my body properly it gets me in a good mood but it's not something I would recommend. So I do lots of stuff because I want to do it because I'm at a point in my life. I don't feel the urge like, to be the best anymore in the gym. So, so, and the second reason is I still feel the need to experiment. And you can't experiment without like trying stuff and maybe some stuff is not going to work. So if I write what I'm doing and I haven't figured out yet, if that's a good method, you might actually be doing something that's not going to be effective. That's how I work. I mean, I, a lot of people will only follow the research. Well, I follow what's happening in the trenches. And you look at like old time strongmen and guys like that, without, before the internet, before magazines, they basically learn by trying stuff, something it was crazy and didn't work sometimes. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be great methods. And that's what I'm trying to do. I, and that's just fun. I mean, that, the, the one thing I hate with like the like, current trend in like the evidence based crew is that it took all the fun yes. into discovery. Yes. Oh, and I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. That's the thing is, like Hank Krianoff, who's been on the show, has said a lot of times it's you come up with something by having fun, letting intuition hit you, and then research will validate it 25 years later, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I, I will say that the paradox almost of that, like seasonality, like being able to take a break to do something else is... The paradox is when you do take a break, you end up better in the long term. Like I know that last, it was last summer. So 2021, July, I went to uh, this Return of the Source, Rafe Kelly's big retreat. It was like parkour in the woods and tons of that. And I was, I, after that retreat, the thought hit me like, I need to take, as much as I love sprinting and jumping. And honestly, I could sprint and jump year. I love it enough that I could do it year round. But I like, I'm like, I'm just going to take a break and skateboard for three weeks <laughs> and not do a whole lot else. And just I'm just going to do this because it's fun and it's new and I'm going to improve. And people say some stuff with foot strength and, and we, I've talked about that on the podcast. But doing that actually set me up to this this past summer, I made the decision, all right, I'm only going to time flying 10s in the summer. Because like your friend who did the sprints in the summer, I'm like, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll sprint all year, but I'm only going to make a big deal of this 
and time the tens in the summer. And that's my season. And that also kind of gives you a thing where like, hey, this is your chance. It gives you that urgency of this is your season for this. You don't get all year. (laughs) And then you got to do something else. Like, And then I'm making my winter more strength oriented. And so just, and I kind of have to, I feel like I almost need like a challenge too. That's the epitome of that. Maybe I need to do like some bouldering competitions or there should be a competition associated with this thing you're doing too. Versus, I don't know, that's at least where I'm kind of going with that. So, yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I, I agree with that, uh, especially if you don't have the burden of, of peaking for an actual competition. Uh, but but it, even then, you know what? Uh, and that's one thing that separates, I think, the, like the very, very high level athletes and the wannabes and those who are less confident about their, their capacities. You will have guys who are at the very top of the pyramid. In their mind, there's no problem taking like four yes. months off from training because they know they got it, right? I, I was reminded like, uh, like Ilya Ilin, Olympic weightlifter, because I, I used to follow him because I really love his technique. And um, he was like world champion and, and, and he took like a full year off, no, tra- no lifting at all. Like he was actually doing lots of dancing and, um, and probably some bodybuilding stuff, I guess, on the side. But he, and, and when he got back to training, I was looking at his weights. Dude, I, I can almost do the weights he's doing. But you know what? Three months later, he, he was winning the world championship with weights way above what he ever lifted. Lu Jung is doing the same thing this year. He started out like taking almost like the, the whole year off because of pandemic and other reasons. And he was posting videos when he was getting back to training and he was failing 80 kilos on a snatch, whereas his best was like 166. And he like he lost all muscle mass, but then again, you know what? Right now he's doing pretty much what he was doing uh, in his competition days, and he's preparing for the world championships again. Uh, so the, the best actually probably are the best in large part because of that, because the motor patterning is so ingrained that they can take some time off, and it won't affect them. And the physiology will come back very quickly, and probably their body now is more responsive than it was had they not stopped training. But they're progressing faster because they're regaining a lot of those capacities with enhanced sensitivity. So they can actually reach a higher level than they did when they were competing before their break. Yeah. Something you had said on Pat's podcast that I thought was really interesting was that something to the tune that overtraining is not, I mean, I'm sure there is some muscle damage stuff and all that, but it's more that you desensitize to whatever you're doing. Absolutely. And I think well, we tend to think, yeah, overtraining is, oh, well, you, you're, you know, maybe your testosterone to cortisol, and maybe it is bad, you know, but, but why is it bad? Is it because you like really damaged your body or your muscles like all ripped up on the inside? <laughs> or is it just, did it start in the brain the same way fatigue starts in the mind? Does overtraining actually start in the mind before it's the body? Brain and hormone, it's brain and hormonal. I mean, uh, the muscle damage, I mean, and don't get me wrong, there is such a thing as peripheral fatigue leading to a decrease in performance because of muscle damage. So basically what happens in when you're training hard and your muscles are firing hard, you will release calcium ions. And that calcium ion buildup is what causes muscle damage. It's actually not the muscle being torn apart. It's really the, the calcium ions. Mm. So that muscle damage, if it's not fixed before your next session, for example, well, it will have a negative impact on performance because the tissue itself, it becomes less responsive to the neural drive because of the inflammation, because of free radicals, because of a, a different in the, uh, the acidity milieu of the, of the muscle. So the muscle becomes less receptive. And, and yes, you have a decrease in performance. But muscle damage is fixed pretty quickly. Mm. I mean, even if you reach a level, I mean, the, the, the most severe case of muscle damage in during performance I've seen lasted 21 days, which is very long, very, very, very long. But then again, that still subsided after 21 days and was the, the, the most severe case I've ever seen. Like hardcore over training mostly has to do with the overproduction of adrenaline and cortisol. So essentially when you're training, you, you, you increase cortisol to increase adrenaline production, to increase mental awareness, mental focus, competitiveness. And obviously the more pressure you put on yourself to perform, the greater the cortisol response because you need that higher adrenaline level to be amped up, right? Uh, that's why a, a competition, even though there's very little volume compared to what you do in training, is a lot more damaging from a recovery standpoint because the adrenaline is so high that it desensitizes 
the beta-adrenergic receptors at the muscle, uh, heart, and brain level. So all these three will become less efficient because they stop responding to your own adrenaline. So at the muscle side, it decreases force production, speed of contraction, uh, muscle tone. So that muscle tone is one of the first symptoms of desensitization, quote-unquote, overtraining. At the cardiac level, well, if your heart doesn't respond well to adrenaline, it can't contract as hard, can't contract as fast. So endurance goes down, as well as clearing out the metabolites produced in the muscle when you do uh, like lactic work, for example. So you you perform more bad in those activities also. And from a brain perspective, if your adrenergic receptors are become downregulated, then your speed of thought decreases, your motivation decreases, your competitiveness has decreased, you have negative thoughts. And then there's a whole cascade because excessive adrenaline production, if it's sustained, will lead to a depletion of other neurotransmitters like noradrenaline, like dopamine, then now you have no pleasure in life. Everything is dark. Everything is bad. So, so it, it, it's really in mostly in neurotransmitter, the brain, and it's also hormonal. The, the, the tissue itself can withstand a lot of work and can recover really quickly. Yeah. So it's almost like the tissue is almost, it's almost like the last link yeah. in the chain to go. It's, it starts in like the neurotransmitters, the brain and the hormonal system. And it makes me so think too that like what's in the brain is in the body. It's in the it's in the hormonal system at least. Like it's it you're gonna see that symbiosis. I guess the question is on level like where did it start? Did it start <laughs> because an athlete like started to mentally get like all right, this is boring, and now the body starts to take on those characteristics. I mean, I guess that's probably minutia, and that's something that <laughs> no, but no, no. It's important to understand it when you're working with with, with advanced athletes, and, and I think there is such a thing as people. Well, and, and we know there's such a thing that people respond better to stress. So some people will actually need the stress to perform well. And these people probably are less likely to suffer from downregulation. Whereas those who constantly need to like try to amp themselves up because they can never like be in the zone, then it's asking a lot of their body. If you're someone who needs to psych up, psych yourself up the train, then you're a, a type of person who will crash very easily. So it, it, it's 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 a fine it, it's somewhat complex, but personality has a role in how easily you you can overtrain the, the neurotransmitter and hormonal systems. Yeah, I actually I have um I have a little follow up with that, and I did want to circle back to what you mentioned about the speed and strength link. But I want to ask this before I, before I forget, as you mentioned, you like yourself doing high frequency training. And that was one thing I wanted to, and I do want to get to the complexes too. Hopefully we have time, but this is something I've noticed with myself as I've really taken to high frequency training. I, I started out with very much to be in the mindset, maybe more like, like you have West side, right? You have a strength day and a dynamic day. You're only training hard per body part, like two days a week. You could do the same thing with speed training. Maybe I'm going to sprint hard twice a week or three times a week and the other days are easy. I found this in my 20s that I responded way better to high frequency work for the most part. But then inevitably, I would kind of get burnt out after so many blocks of that because <laughs> it's like it just squeezed so much performance out of me. And then mm. I'd have to like deload because it's almost I and I don't know. Part of it is did the high frequency allow me to build like solid structures in my body or was that just expressing what I already had or probably a combination of the two I would say but I find now and this is what I wanted to ask you and and you could feel free to chime in any of what I just said but nowadays if I go after being so used to a high frequency model and I genuinely enjoy the training I do I I'm not really belabored to go out and train some days more than others but if I go now to a low frequency if I just go down to two days a week I have a hard time with that. <laughs> like I really have genuinely have a hard time. And so I'm just curious what your take is on like alternating between those two. Once you expose someone to a higher frequency model that could get more out of them and, and alternating between a lower frequency and a higher frequency. I think it, it depends a lot on, like, because we need to understand that like the training itself can, especially if it becomes like a daily thing, will have an impact on circadian rhythms. Like it's like a, an external signal that can trigger, especially if you train at the same time, always at the same time. So if, for example, if you train in the morning, it can actually be part of your wake cycle. So it actually can, can contribute to putting you in that sympathetic mode that you, you need during your day. So it actually puts you in a better mindset, right? 
so, so that I can actually help you have a more regular circadian rhythm, which is which tend to be pretty irregular because of our our lifestyle and modern like go 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 lifestyle. Uh, so that that's part of it. So when you remove that, you're removing one of the main signals that trigger your day or circadian rhythm. It's kind of like we say that ideally you would wake up and the first thing you do is look at sunlight. And similarly, when you go to bed, if you have a hard time like relaxing in the evening and watching the sky, the moon, the, the stars at night also triggers the parasympathetic system will increase melatonin production. So, so it can put you in that rest and recover mode. So, so these are external signs that can help you regulate your biorhythm or your sacred rhythm. And training can actually become part of that equation if you do it often. Uh, same thing could be using like red light therapy in the morning, for example. Okay, But once you remove those stimulus, it's like there's something missing. Mm-hmm. Especially if you get your body used to using those signals to like regulate your daily calendar, see what I mean, your daily schedule. So that's part of it. And there's obviously the uh, neurological activation aspect, which I kind of mentioned, which also plays a role. Uh, then there are many hormonal impact, like cortisol will increase adrenaline when you're training. So that, and there will be a release in dopamine. There will be endorphins if you do more of an energy system session. So there's lots of good stuff happening that puts you in a better mood, better mindset. And when you take that out, it's kind of like a withdrawal symptom, syndrome, right? So if you never feel that, if you train like uh, one day on, one day off, for example, you never build up that, that need. So, But if you train frequently, then you actually need that. It, it becomes a, a part of your drug regimen, if you want to call it that, that your body needs. Now, the thing is that, yeah, you can burn out. It really becomes a matter of, of properly regulating volume and intensity. And I find that you actually need, and sh- especially for performance, you should use a much, much lower vol- daily volume than you think you need. And that's been my greatest finding and change. Uh, because when I was training mostly for like hypertrophy, using like low demands exercises, maybe more machine work, maybe more single joint movement, not going super heavy, then yeah, you can maintain a pretty high volume and that's fine because the muscle itself recover pretty easily. Mm -hmm. But the moment you start focusing on neurological work, then you actually don't need a strong stimulus to get adaptations. And especially if you have a very efficient nervous system. So personally, what I find is I probably go like half the volume of what I think I need when I'm using a high frequency approach. And if you go with a lower frequency approach, then you need to increase volume. Like a, a friend of mine had a good analogy when it comes to diet. If you have one meal a day, it has to be one freaking big meal, right? If you're eating three meals a day, it has to be moderate meals. If you're eating six times a day, it has to be small meals. Same thing with training and the same thing apply. And it applies not just to volume, but for the, to the training stress. The higher or the more effective the training methods are, the less volume you do. And that would be the benefit of those higher effectiveness methods like complexes, for example. Like right now, what I'm doing is I, I, I'm, I am focusing on mostly my inclined bench press because I do need a goal. I still train the snatch grip high pole. I still train the squat, but at a lower frequency. But I will train the, high, the inclined bench press six days a week. But only two of those days are, are, are high demand. And these would be my complex workouts. And I would use a Werner Gunther complex, uh, which is extremely stimulating because you have actually modified it quite a bit. So you have a, like a, the first layer would be uh, like a max, a, a super maximal eccentric. So you have like 105% on eccentric, 80% on the concentric for one rep. Then my second step would be 90% eccentric, 60% concentric for six reps. Then I have statodynamic. So it's going to be a pause like three inches from the chest and then explode from that position with 70% for six reps. Then I would have a pure isometrics for 30 seconds in that same position with 60%. Then I would have max explosion rep with 60%. So that would be very hefty complex, very high stimulus. What I do it once. I do one complex per workout. I started at twice, two workouts, because I need to build up my sets to get to the heavyweight first anyway. So that was already some volume in there. I started twice and I just couldn't recover from it. I dropped down to doing the complex once. 
And I'm literally adding 15 to 20 pounds per week since I started doing that. And the other days when I do the incline, it's like just strength skill. So like three sets of three reps with 80%, just focusing on technique. Because when you go heavy work and explosive, sometimes the technique will break down. And the rest of the, the, the exercises, the volume is also low. So my total training time per session is probably like 30, 35 minutes. So not less than I thought I need. So complexes, for example, if the, the, obviously the more exercises you have in a complex, the less volume you should do. The problem is people will look at a typical complex, let's say a Russian complex where you have a squat and a jump squat, for example. So you have a squat, let's say three reps at 85%. Two minutes rest, then you have uh, five trap bar jumps at 10% of your max squat. For example, you might do that three or, two, three or four sets with because you only have two exercises. But if you do the same four rounds for a complex with four exercises, you literally have a humongous volume of a lot of different stimuli. And the more different stimuli you have together, the harder the nervous system needs to work. Because even though the movement pattern are, are quite similar, you're not using the same contraction style, contraction speed. It's a different motor task. So with every set, your brain has to program a new motor pattern, which is very hard to do. So you produce even more adrenaline because you need more brain power. So your neuron needs to fire faster. And adrenaline makes you do neuron fires faster. So the more complex a complex is, the more exercises there is, the greater the neurological load of that complex. So the less work you should be doing. So that's the problem. A lot of people, the complex is are my, my favorite performance method of all time. But people overdo them. And I yeah. used to overdo them also because I worked with athletes who were on the resistance spectrum. Like I use, and that's something you need to realize. Like if you're reading or listening to a strength coach, okay, what was or what is their typical clientele? For example, Charles Polican, okay, is use of cluster training. Is a, a Polican cluster, you use your 3RM, so let, let's say 92%, 90%, which you do for five reps with 15 seconds in between. Give that to a strong athlete or a fast-switch dominant athlete. There's no way he can do it. No way. He will actually do less reps than he would normally do at that load with straight sets. Because for him, that 15-second period is not enough. To recover a strong athlete a, a high fast switch fiber athlete would need 30 40 45 seconds between reps to get the cluster effect okay but that worked with charles because he was working mostly with hockey players especially back then and even now nowadays hockey players are on the low end of strength and on the high hand of recovery because they train in a lactic zone pretty much all the time so they have very good resistance they recover really quickly but they don't have the strength to create a lot of fatigue on each rep. If you give that to an Olympic weightlifter, it won't work as well. So, so I work a lot with hockey players also, which can tolerate a humongous amount of volume. So I use like two complexes per workout, but that's too much. Most people should stick with one complex and do a lot less than they think. And if there's one message that I, people should remember is, especially with high-frequency training, do a lot less than you think you need. Because if you're training every day, the stimulus will pile up anyway. Quickly, I wanted to let you know about the chance to try out Performance Herbalism for only a few dollars shipping costs and get one of Lost Empire Herbs' flagship products, Pine Pollen, for free. Switching to an herbal emphasis in my supplementation has been a life-changing switch for me. Just as nature is by design balanced and sustainable, I believe that the more natural our diet and our supplementation is, the better. I love and use several Lost Empire Herbs products that boost not only my energy, but also my strength. These include Chiliagit Resin and the Phoenix Formula. You can check those out by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and grab 15% off. If you're on the fence about the power of herbalism, I have a great offer for you, which is that you can get free pine pollen. Pine pollen is an herbal powerhouse that is a hormonal and energy booster packed with nutrition. It's actually part of the Phoenix Formula. And you can get that for free uh, along with the normal shipping fee at justflypinepollen.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, as I've gotten into my late 30s, I've learned that pretty substantially. I even had it to the point where, yeah, I would just be doing 
just a couple sets of whatever the main thing was, the main high intensity thing on that day, and then just surround it with a lot of more recovery based or isometric, like easier, not not overcoming, but easier isometrics and all that stuff. And that seemed to be really helpful. I It reminds me, and what you said with that, uh, the Gunther complex, I think it was, which I'd love to get into that and some more of the complexes you use into the nuts and bolts. But it was Bobby Stroop who talked about just using like one round of French contrast and that's it. And that was like, I was like, I, I mean, I won't say it's totally mind blown because I had done two and I thought that was like revolutionary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I went back when I was at Cal, I was working with the, the teams. It's like, all right, we're just going to do two. And I'm like, and then Bobby's like one. I'm like, whoa, one. But I'm like, that makes perfect sense. Like, because if you do it well and it's a complex, like you said, it's like more, it's, it's almost like we're so hung up on the, well, we got to do three or four sets of whatever we're doing mentality. I just thought that was so brilliant with Bobby just doing that. And there's there's such a sense of urgency to it as well. Mm-hmm. Like it, if you're just doing one or two of something, it it does make it a little bit more special. And yeah, maybe you don't get the warm up, but that Gunther, I mean, the complex sounds gnarly too. I the Gunther complex even more than French contrast. You still do, you still do warm ups before. Yeah. So it's not like you're not getting work done. And that's the particularity <laughs> of warming up for performance training versus warming up for bodybuilding. Like a warming up, or bodybuilding does not contribute to hypertrophy because you're doing your sets that will be like five, six, seven reps short of failure, which means that none of the reps are actually contributing to muscle growth. But for performance, if your intent is to accelerate the weight, even during your earlier sets, which maybe you need one or two rounds just to practice the movement to get in the groove, if you have an intent to be explosive, even though you're using some maximal loads, uh, or even if you're just going at 80% effort, you still have a training effect. So it's not like it does not contribute. It's not like you're doing like just one set. It, uh, all the previous work you're doing will contribute to your performance improvement. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you're not just going to step in and just, you know, load overloaded eccentric yeah, yeah. on the bar and just hit the first set. I mean, you're clearly going to ramp up sure. to that. Now, <laughs> when you, or maybe just crazy one day and just do it that way. But uh, now, now with that, though, when you say one set, is that, now, when you would like warm up for that, for example, that Gunther complex, are you yeah. warming up with a few, like just some, like a squatting ramp up and then you hit that complex or do you warm up with some maximal sets of the complex and then hit it hard one time? Could you just go into that if you're just going to do like one set the, of the, the complex? The, the, the Gunther complex, I only need to warm up one exercise because there yeah. is no plyometrics. So for example, if I had a squat and a plyometric exercise, I would need to warm up both. Because, and that's the thing, and that's, by the way, I'm just going to like sink into like what I mentioned about strength not being as important as we thought for mm-hmm. power, although yeah. it's not unimportant, is that the, the recruitment pattern uh, during a, a fast action and during a slow, strong action is completely different from a, a muscle recruitment perspective. And that means that you can be really, really efficient at one type and not have the same efficiency as the other, as the other one. So you might be really efficient in the slow movements, which is monophasic when it comes to muscle recruitment. So you recruit all the agonists and synergistic muscle and they stay turned on for the whole rep or for the whole movement, the whole movement. And you have a background coactivation of the antagonist to create stability, right? And the more technically efficient you are, the less of that coactivation you have. So the prime movers have less resistance. Uh, now, in explosive movement, you have a triphasic structure to muscle activation. So the agonist and synergistic muscles start by firing really, really hard without coactivation of the antagonist. And then you will have a peak in antagonistic muscle activation, kind of to stabilize the movement once momentum has been created. And then there's a second peak of agonist and synergistic activation with a decrease in antagonist recruitment. I'll show you the curve. It's easier visual to see. But the point is that neurologically speaking, the brain does not recruit muscles the same way in fast and slow movements. And that the difference is even greater when you have several muscles involved in a movement. So you, that's why powerlifters who squat a thousand pounds are not necessarily fast sprinters, right? Even the lean powerlifters who like in the lower class, like 81, 181, who squat 800 pounds are not going to run a sub 11 second, 100 meters, except for some rare exceptions, right? You can be really efficient at one, but not efficient at the other one, okay? So when you're warming up, if you have a, a, a plyometric exercise, a jump exercise, an Olympic lift, you need to warm up, warm it up separately, not just like, I'm going to do my strength lift, yeah. and I'm going to be automatically, so you need both. But in a Werner uh, Gunter complex, it's all strength related. Yes, you have some movements that are 
faster, like the, the last layer would be 60% for six reps at max speed. So that's more slanted toward strength speed, but it's still strength dominant. It's not a plyometric effect. So, so, and it's still the same exact same movement pattern as the bench press. And anyway, when I'm warming up the, the incline press or the squat or whatever with the earlier sets, I have the intent to accelerate as much as possible. So I am warming up those fast velocities anyway. So what I do is that I will normally gradually ramp up with doubles or triples, whatever that I feel like today. I, I like doubles because I don't want to cause any fatigue for the for for the the complex. Although if I wanted to build a bit more muscle, I might go with triples or even up to five reps. But normally it's like doubles that I just gradually ramp up to roughly uh, I won't say um, 80, 85%. At what point I can start my, my, my first layer. But when you have the intent to accelerate, you turn on the nervous system as much as, much as possible. So it, it's very quite simple. Same thing on, on the squat. Now, if I were to like use a complex with, with three different exercises, that would be different. One might be like a strength movement. One might be a plyometric exercise. One might be a sports skill movement. Then you, you do need some preparation work for all three just at least to grease the groove and not have that one set you do done on a suboptimal pattern activation that would lead to polluting your motor pattern. Yeah, maybe that speaks to why French contrast, and that's what I wanted to get into a little bit today too. It's like French contrast has kind of stuck out, at least in my observation, from some of the other complex methods for, for speed and power yeah. athletes. And it's if you think of it as as a different program, the the strength is a different program than the speed. Well, it's like within a French contrast, you have a strength that potentiates a speed and then you get another version of that. So you get like a high force version of that pairing, like a heavy lift and then a, like a depth jump and then you get a high speed force version of that pairing, so like a jump squat and a like a quick line hop or something like that. But it's interesting to think of that in light of some of the other complexes out there. And that's what I wanted to get into as well. It sounds like that Gunther complex, like that is a very, like if I'm a shot putter, that's awesome. Like I need some size and strength, but maybe that complex wouldn't be ideal if I'm a hundred meter sprinter and I need more speed elements in there. And so I'll just kick this off a little bit open-ended with, you know, French contrast, it stuck out as, and it is extremely effective, but with the, the sensitization in mind, like if I only do French contrast all year, eventually It'll be fun and challenging uh, for the athlete's brain and nervous system to mix that up. So for you, alternatives or similar and favorable complexes in developing speed and power that may be other than French contrast. Well, first, okay, just, let's just backtrack a bit. I just want to finish my thoughts on, on because people will, okay. will be confused when I say that strength is not uh, the foundation of power. I mean, it is to some extent the main benefit of strength work and strength work should only be general. Okay. Power work can be specific and probably should be specific at some point. But strength work is general because the main purpose of strength work for an athlete is simply to increase the capacity of the nervous system to send a strong activation drive to the muscles. That's all it is. It's just to be able for that central machine to send a signal, whatever that signal is. Okay, So you don't need to have a movement that is very specific to be effective for sport. And that's why some people will benefit for strength work from strength work if they have an inefficient nervous system, yeah. while others won't if they already have that that very efficient central drive. Anyway, so if, I, if I love that by the way. That's sorry to interrupt, but that that's awesome. Just even think about like the natural athlete, the, like the person who didn't have to lift weights that could still sprint and jump. It's like they just maybe had amazing drive. And from that Absolutely. pure general, the pure general perspective, they already had it, you know, but then all the specific skill, the power, you know, they're getting through maybe playing or whatever they're doing. So yeah, I'm sorry, I just, I, that it, it's really just a way to give you the mechanics to be able to do the power work and speed work as efficiently as possible, mm -hmm. because without that strong drive, because explosive movements rely on fast twitch fibers and you need to have those fast twitch fibers fire as fast as possible. And they are called high threshold motor units for a reason because they have a very high activation threshold. They need a very strong neural signal to get activated. So if you don't have that capacity to send a strong neural drive, the fast switch fibers will only come into play when the intermediate fibers are incapable of doing the work. Whereas someone with a very, very strong drive can almost recruit all those fibers simultaneously. So obviously, it can be more powerful, more agile, more quicker, and all that stuff. So if you have that naturally, 
doing all the strength work in the world will not make you faster. It will make you stronger. So maybe in some phases of your sport where you need strength, it's going to help, but it's not going to contribute to making you faster. Okay. But not everybody is born with those advantages and they do need the strength work. Not so much because, well, if my legs are stronger, I'm going to sprint faster. No, your, your legs are plenty strong to run fast. Okay. You need that drive to be able to recruit those faster fibers and the strength work will give you that. But the cool thing is that it doesn't take long to get it. Okay. And once you have it, it lasts for 30 days. So you, you can actually not train strength for 30 days and you will maintain that neural drive. Your, your squat might go down because you're not practicing it, but you still have the neurological adaptations. And, and even then you could just like touch up on, on some heavy lifting every three weeks and you would maintain or even improve your neural drive. So there's no the burden uh, of doing constantly heavy work when your goal is simply to get faster and more powerful. Okay. Now, if you're playing football and you need to tackle someone, that's a different story. Mm -hmm. But for pure speed, that's the same yeah. thing. Now, if you want to use complexes strictly for speed, well, you need to include as many or as frequently exercises with either uh, 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 well, with a very fast contraction velocity, ideally matching the speed that you or the, the muscle contraction velocity you will be using in your sport, or maybe even doing over speed work, but certainly in that range, right? And, and if you want to use heavier work for speed work, it's only, as you mentioned, as a potentiation tool. You are using either, let's say, for example, super maximal lift. So maybe you're doing top half squats as the first exercise in your complex, just because it's going to get a stronger excitatory effect on the nervous system than just regular heavy lifting because you have more weight. You could use uh, the overload eccentrics. You could use isometrics, just overcoming isometrics, pushing as hard or as you can on against an immobile object. For example, going in a power rack, putting the bar below the safety pins, squat, let's say 90-ish degrees in the angle and hip angle and pushing as hard as humanly possible for six seconds. That does exactly what the heavy partial does when it comes to speed work, okay? To me, if I'm building a complex and my goal for that complex is increasing power, because as you mentioned, building strength, like the Gunther complex is a strength complex. It has nothing to do with power, even though you are doing some reps fast. It's all about strength. And I actually question whether it was super efficient for Gunther. I think most of his gain was probably more because when he was combining bench press squats with shot puts and, and all the parametrics work was doing probably the heavy complex he was doing which he was doing only for four weeks was simply to get that well that's probably not why he was doing it or what he thought he was doing it but that was the actual effect it was simply strengthening that neural drive because of all the various and very high tension contractions right so it was more of a general complex in my opinion but so if you're using a complex to build strength and uh, speed and power okay and then for me a heavy lift overload lift partial and overcoming isometrics it's the same thing it's the same thing it's redundant so you i wouldn't do both i wouldn't do like let's say heavy partials and full squats i use that in the past i don't do it anymore because now i have a better understanding when i'm going for speed then the high tension exercise serves only the purpose of amping up the nervous system for the following explosive exercise or exercises, right? So you could do overcoming as one complex I really like, overcoming isometric six seconds all out, 90, 90 degrees knee and hip angle, followed by a plyometer or a jump exercise. Could be a loaded jump squat, mm -hmm. could be a vertical jump, or it could be both. I could be doing, for example, squat against spins, six seconds, two or three minutes rest because potentiation is at its highest at two or three minutes. Then trap bar jumps with 10% of your max squat, two or three minutes rest, vertical jump or depth jump. Okay. Or I could do, for example, in a power rack, overcoming isometrics deadlift or RDL. Okay. Then two or three minutes, I would do, let's say, power cleans. And then I would, with very light, very light weight, by the way. And I'm going to get back to Olympic lift afterwards. And then I would do broad jumps, for example, or hurdle jumps, or like any forward moving jumps. So I want to use the high tension work mostly for potentiation. And I really like the overcoming isometrics first because they're a lot less draining than the heavy work, than even partials or, or full range. So they will have less 
fatigue impact on, on the explosive mm -hmm. movement, but they have pretty much the same potentiation. Okay, so so that would be a very effective complex. Also requires a lot less warming up, which is a benefit for athletes who have a very low tolerance for volume, like like sprinters, for example. Now for the Olympic lifts, also I change the way I use them when I do complexes. If I'm doing a complex to build strength, a general complex, okay, I just want a stronger neural drive or get stronger for, like, say, tackling in football. Yeah, I'm going to use, okay, by the way, I only use lifts from the hang. So power snap from the hang, power clean from the hang, and only in the power position. There is no need to, like, full squat. That's, like, stupid with an athlete. Because, first of all, that's too technical. Second, you reduce the height at which you're pulling the barbell. So you're producing less power, which is kind of the goal. And you all actually want to explode from the athletic position and catch a weight or absorb force in that same athletic position, which is not the full squat unless you're a catcher in baseball, right? So anyway, so the way I see it is completely different than when I see it for Olympic weightlifters. If you are Olympic weightlifter, you need to just produce as much height as you need to get under the bar to be as efficient as possible and use your leg strength to stand back up. With athletes, I use power snatches from the hang and power cleans from the hang. But if an Olympic lifting coach was listening to the cues I was giving, he would throw something in my head. Because to me, it's not an Olympic lift. It just happens to look like a snatch or look like a power clean. My cue is jump with a freaking barbell. Okay. And that you would never say that to an Olympic weightlifter because the trend is actually to shorten your pole to move faster under the bar. But with an athlete, you're using them as a form of ballistic exercise. To me, a power snatch for an athlete is a loaded jump, except that you can actually release the bar in the air. So you can actually, you need to produce even more momentum. So that's the way I teach the Olympic lifts. I'm going to use a lot less weight. And I prefer the power snatch because a power clean is kind of hard to do with maximum explosion with light weights. The bar will go will just way too high. Uh, snatch it works. So, so I would actually use very light weight for power snatches, maybe 55 to 65% in complexes aimed at building speed. Because the goal is not to get stronger. The goal is to get those muscles firing faster. If the barbell is moving at 1.2 meters per second, I'm not doing my job. I need to reach like 1.8, 1.9, 2 meters per second, something like that. So I want maximum velocity. So I'm using light loads with the cue of jumping. It's, to me, a ballistic movement. So, so the, the, the cue is, when trying to build speed, it's not complicated. You have one excitatory exercise at the beginning. Anything that requires a very high level of force production can be overcoming isometrics, can even be yielding isometrics or functional isometrics with heavy weights. If you, if you want to like to see a weight move, it can be heavy partials, can be even a heavy lift, although that's the, my least favorite solution because of the higher need for warming up, higher risk of injury, and the higher fatigue. Then you will have one or two very fast movements. Now, these movements can be strength speed, which would be like the Olympic variations. It could be speed strength, which would be your jump squats with light weights, medicine ball throws, stuff like that, or even, even uh, like weighted sprints, which only works for 20 meters or less, because higher than that, you don't have the proper position. It could be, uh, if I'm doing a specific sports skill, it could be an overloaded golf swing, for example. Then I would have a third exercise, which could be even faster. So it could be a reactive movement, could be a sprint, could be a, an unloaded jumps, could be a depth jump. So, so the goal is really to have that high velocity zone potentiated by a max force movement. The max force movement is not a goal in itself. It's just a tool to get a more out of the explosive movement. And that's the difference when you do a complex where your goal is to get stronger. Now the, strength, the, the, the heavy movements can be used in combination. I could use a heavy partial with a full range lift. I could use an overcoming isometrics with a full range lift or an overcoming isometrics with a partial lift because my goal is to build strength. But if my goal is to build power, then I, I will need to focus on speed and only use that high tension movement to potentiate the nervous system. Yeah, it's interesting. I was, I had a question in my question list to ask you about the overcoming isometrics in relation to the role in the complex. I, when I was at Cal, it was kind of like an eight year evolution of starting with regular French contrast and then finding out ways to make this better. Not that it isn't great just as it is, but even as you said, just simple things it's like- It's great, but every, every complex only works for roughly four weeks. 
Yeah, it, it, yeah, it can. However, great it is, like neurological complex. So, so at four, you're gonna get super fast result for three weeks. Then after that, it, it tops out. So you, even though it's great, you do need to to change the stimulus if you want to progress. Because as I mentioned earlier, especially with the French comp, contrast, contrast with four exercises, for example, you can't progress the stimulus by adding volume, because the magnitude of the volume increase by adding only one set is like adding four sets so that's way too much yeah yeah and even just yeah going starting in the fall with two and going to three was was really helpful and that was almost my progression i didn't change the like when working with athletes and doing that i didn't change too many things but they got a break they also got to desensitize from the french contrast i would start it like six weeks before december meet change some exercises up they do their december meet then we just do bodybuilding stuff for a few weeks to kind of wash everything out and resensitize and we'd start it again in like mid-january and then do that till March. But even then, I I will say I didn't do the the overcoming isometrics with like the college group. I just I did that only with some of the pro swimmers. This being with the men's men's swim team, I, this I did this stuff with track when I work with track. I've always felt like some of the other sports like tennis. I was like, ah, tennis doesn't they really need to do French contrast? <laughs> Anyways, um, but I found that it with some of the really experienced athletes making the switch to a functional like. We didn't have a like a force plate to measure like how hard are you pulling into the bar for that overloaded isometric. We just did. I I think I got this idea from you. Just like just loading the shit out of a bar and just lifting it up like an inch, <laughs> and 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 that's it. And so we did that as our replacement for the overload. And I had some pro swimmers like they were that year we did that. They were maxing out on all their power metrics like Kaiser jump wattage, a vertical jump, all that stuff was higher than it had ever been. I think the reason I didn't keep using it with that population was I found that it actually, th- that didn't correlate with their best swimming <laughs> seasons because yeah. I think it's because like, all right, well, great. Maybe you're one, a few hundreds faster off the block. That's awesome. But this is not your whole race, obviously. <laughs> like there's more specific skills, but I was like, well, in my corner in the way, you're like, yes, you're as powerful. You're more powerful on this than you've ever been. And yeah. Maybe if it was a 50 sprinter, it would have been different. That was like, you know, hundred meter athletes and and what 100 200 athletes so it's a little bit different and by story. the way there, there would be a way to do french contrast with with, with, with tennis and with golf and, and with baseball for example the, the first exercise would be uh, an overcoming isometrics in a sport specific position so for example in, in golf you would use you would hold the the, the contact position or the impact position uh, let's say against the wall or something or a resistance pulling you back for six seconds as hard as you can then you would do, for example, your, your regular swing. So you would hit maybe three balls. Then you could have overloaded swing. So a, a golf club with a few ounces more weight than a regular club. Then you could go with the over speed work, which is a specific stick that is 6% lighter that I use. And then you could finish with a reactive swing. You would have a, a resistance band attached to a post in front of you. So in your backswing, you have more tension, but it actually speeds yourself up in the, back, in the downswing. So that could actually be used. It could be used. Yeah, that sounds that sounds awesome. I know you're doing all we talked about your work with golf as well. Like for me, if I'm going to go out to the driving range and, and work on just swinging ability, I would absolutely keep that in mind. The only reason I joked about tennis was just because uh, it was the nuances of tennis. For me, it was more the consistency of even seeing some of the athletes with all the playing they were doing wasn't necessarily there. So my concerns are more just basic strength and then uh, injury prevention, like robustness. Like that was... That's the reason I kind of chuckled. I it would be cool in the you know in the maybe in the off season or something like that in that situation. But and that would, of the, the high volume of work they're already doing, it's kind of yeah. hard to do. Yeah. So maybe golf, it's more practical because they don't do as many physical work from a, like a cardiovascular or or even change of direction that, that negatively impact the body's capacity to recover. So yeah, just last question quickly, Christian, and I, I know we we're running down on time, so I want to make this really fast. Is this most ascending versus descending? I know in your your books and articles you've talked about. I think it's called like the Canadian descending method, and yeah, I almost wonder is it even worth it to do ascending work? Like start with we usually think oh we'll start with and for a track practice okay we're gonna start with speed and then we'll go in the weight room and I get it if your sprint practice drained you, you know you you want to do the the freshest thing first, but if I was thinking, well, if, if a few potentiation sets don't drain you, you, you know what I'm saying? So anyways, just in respect to time, uh, thoughts yeah. of ascending versus descending type power. Yeah, obviously, the Canadian ascending descending system was invented like 25 years ago, 22 years ago. So I, I didn't have the knowledge I have now. So I thought it was cool to do a complex 
starting with a heavier work and then a complex, starting with a lighter work, the faster work on different days. But, but you're right. When you understand the real purpose of each step in a complex, it, it, it doesn't do anything because you really want to use the heavy work as potentiation rather than as a training tool itself, unless it's a strength complex. And in that case, there is no sense in doing ascending, descending because you, you are training strength qualities. So, so I think that the complex will always be better if you use high force methods first mm -hmm. and use that to potentiate the high speed method and never uh, underestimate the value of resting between exercises. I think that one of the biggest drawbacks, well, it's not a drawback, but of, of complexes is the amount of adrenaline that they produce because of the complexity of combining several motor tasks in one task then you need a lot more brain power. So your neuron needs to fire faster to increase more adrenaline. But what that does, when your adrenaline is high, you want you are in go, go, go mode, right? You don't feel the fatigue as much. You want to go right now. You're excited. You're amped up. And a lot of, people, a lot of athletes will, will short side themselves by resting one minute instead of three or even four minutes. Uh, like potentiation after a heavy lift or, 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 or high-tension method will peak at around two minutes. It's very high for two to three minutes and gradually get down at the four minutes mark. And at five minutes, there's still a residual effect. So the ideal rest period between station of a complex will be two to four minutes, especially between uh, the, the heavy layer and the explosive one. Yeah. Well, sounds good. Hey, I'm sure we could go so far down the ascending, descending, or continue to go down that rabbit hole as well. But the principles... It's really you know, underwhelming to yeah. only do one hour. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, no worries. No worries at all. I mean, you know, in the, the, the editing and the turnaround, you know, it's, uh, I'm used to listening to these again and, and taking notes on them myself in two hours. I have like so many notes. I feel like I just took a class, but hey, one hour will be like, it'll be a, it'll be a mini class for me. So, hey, I, I appreciate any time I can get with you, Christian. And thank you so much for being on the show, talking about these complexes and these ideas and always appreciate talking to you, man. It was great, man. Appreciate it thanks for tuning in to another episode if you enjoyed the show you can help us out by leaving us a rating or a view on spotify itunes whatever you're listening to the show on would totally appreciate that and we'll see you guys next week with another great guest have a good one